if you're around good people and you feel like they're good people and you admire them, whatever they do or whatever wisdom they can impart on you, just trust it. This is the Rower's Choice Podcast. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we are at another Rower's Choice Zoomcast podcast, whatever you want to call it. And I'm with someone uh, who I actually have known his brother for a very long time. Uh, I've known of him. I have uh, I have worked alongside him in many facets of rowing, but we've never actually had a, a legitimate sit-down conversation until today. And I'm with Marty Crotty, the head of Princeton lightweight rowing, but this guy has a huge background. There's one thing that he brought up that I think is really fantastic, and that is the one degree of separation rowing. And everyone knows what I'm talking about. Rowing is the smallest sport in the world. I truly believe it. We're all connected in some way, shape, or form, and we're going to talk about that on today's show. We're going to talk about the one degree of separation between Marty, myself, and all the other people in the the rowing world. We're going to learn a little bit about his background and his rowing experience, as well as his coaching experience and a hot topic that we will close with, which is uh, lightweight rowing in America. Where is it headed? What can we do to make it better? What can we do to make it stronger? Is it in? Is it out? You name it. So Marty, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Alex. And uh, I was drawn to this, I suppose, through your coach's yelling uh, game show that I guess you could call it. Hopefully... Hopefully I never have to be on that show because I don't think I could, I don't think I could take it to Mike Wall and Luke Wall. They're tough guys, man. I mean, you know, there's something about them. No, they're, they're tough. They're, they're, you know, I think what it is is like, they're so passionate about rowing and they come from a world of just being loud. They're just loud guys and they love to talk. So Marty, I'm going to start every, like every other episode, we're going to start with this. I want to know your background from the time you took your first stroke to today running the men's lightweight program at Princeton University. Walk me through it. I, I'm not gonna get into the details. You can dig if you want. So the, the broad stroke is 1993, I was at Canisius High School in Buffalo and uh, our varsity baseball team was very good. I had played baseball my whole life mm-hmm. and uh, it just wasn't in the cards. There were a couple of catchers ahead of me. And I went down to the boathouse and thank God for a guy named Mark Kostrevsky, who um, is still around at the BSRA now. Mark Kostrevsky took me aside and kind of fast-tracked me. Mm. And uh, Mark Kostrevsky and Jack Dorn were my first two coaches. Um, four months later, I was on the starting line in Oslo, Norway in the Junior World Championship 8. and here I am now, I guess. That's the fast version. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Four months into rowing and you're on the junior national, like starting, like how, how do you get, how do you get there? How did that happen? Uh, you know, in Buffalo, everything is super late. I didn't take my first strokes. Uh, I didn't, I didn't take my first stroke on the erg or in the tanks until late March. Um, we went down to a training tech camp down in Ithaca as Kanisha still does. Uh, for for a three day kind of weekend Friday Saturday Sunday training camp, um, I loved it. I loved being out on the water. I loved just feeling of leverage and moving a boat. And uh, we had a great team and a couple of good guys around me. Um, 
Went through that whole season, had a pretty good junior four going. I famously ripped my hip apart uh, the day before Scholastic Nationals. So I didn't even have a season. Wow. And uh, I came back from this hip fracture thing. And somebody told me to get on an erg and rip off a 2K. And I think I pulled a 620. Um, what? And I'd never done one before. And <laughs> I was going to bar back at my uh, uncle's restaurant, Hope's Lake Shore, Ethel Springs, New York. I was going to bar back all summer. And that was great. My whole family worked there. It's a great seafood restaurant on the shores of Lake Erie. My brother came down and got me from work one night and said, listen, dad told me to drive down here and you got to come home with me. You got to get on a plane to Long Beach tomorrow morning. So the word had gotten out about the 620. And at the time, this guy, Mike Viscovi, was coaching Long Beach State and he was running the camp out of Long Beach. And uh, I had never been to California before. I don't think I'd, I'd been on a plane maybe once before, once or twice before. <laughs> And uh, sounded good to me. The word had gotten out about the 620, and the guy wanted to give me a chance. And I didn't. I was so green, and that probably that's probably what saved me. So, Wait a minute. So I'm I'm sorry. You got to I, I I know you want to talk broad strokes here, but this is crazy. You're telling me that you jumped on an erg, you pull a 620, and because of how small rowing is, your brother drives up, says you got to get on a plane, and you're on a plane in like a couple of days and rowing with. With, the next yeah the next morning so. how is that how is that even real how is that how does that happen um i think the guy behind the whisper campaign with the 620 was this guy jim neal and jim neal was a famous canisius high school olympian uh he went to barcelona in 1992 in the cox I think they yeah. got the fourth wow jim's gonna kill me if you want a bronze medal in that i i apologize jim <laughs> uh, but Jim was a best friend of my older brothers. I'm the youngest of seven. And Jim was one of, and, and so I think my brothers got talking and Jim said, you know, 620, like somebody needs to know about this. Um, I know that wouldn't even hold a candle to any of these kids these days, but. Uh, well, back then, I mean, that's a different story. You're talking early. Jim night. made a call. I got on a plane. Um, quick story. We all know Matt Guerrero. Yeah. So Holy Spirit guy and Matt Guerrero, well, I won't put the cart before the horse. Matt Guerrero, very first guy I saw Long Beach at the Naval Base where we were in our dorms. Very first guy I saw was Matt Guerrero, who at the time was 18 years old. He had a full bushy beard. I don't think I knew anybody who could grow hair on their face at the time. And I said, well, uh, hi, how you doing? I'm, my name is Marty Crotty and, and you must be Mike Viscovi. And he's like, no, I'm not the coach. I'm, my name's Matt Guerrero. That is awesome. And let me tell you, I didn't know anything about what had occurred the year before. They had just won the gold medal in Montreal. You know, Josh Crosby, Mike Callahan, Matt Guerrero, David, yeah. all the legends of junior rowing. And the very first guy I saw was Matt Guerrero. And once I found out that I was actually going to be competing against this guy, thank God he was important. Once I found out I was going to be competing against this guy, I, I went to the nearest payphone. I called my dad. I'm like, I think I need to come home. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you, uh, so you, I mean, you made the, you made the boat. Where, where did you sit in that boat? Um, I sat bow. Your bow seat. Bow seat. Best, best seat in the boat. There's no question about it. So was that your senior year of high school? That was my junior year. 
your junior year. So you're one of the younger guys in that boat, then, if that's right. Uh, yeah, it was Bob Cummins, Aaron Frank, Dan Perkins, Dave Ryan, Porter Collins. Porter Collins is in that boat. Yeah. Whew. And, you know what's, uh, what's, what's fascinating about this is uh, this was, I don't even know, nearly 30 years ago. And you can remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, you remember that your lineup. I'm sure you remember the lineup. I'm sure you remember the whole race, don't you? I always remember your first time. <laughs> there's, a lot of boats I, there's a lot of boats I was in that I couldn't tell you who stroked it, who coxed it, coached it. But that's uh, obviously that's the first big time rowing that I was involved in. And uh, I'll never forget the coach. I'll never forget what got me there and, and little details like that. That is uh, that that's something special. Now, did you carry? I'm just trying to put myself in that position. If I'm racing the junior national champ, the junior world championships, I, I'm making rowing my 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 focus. Right? Did you go to college and row in college at that point? Uh, yeah. So I I um, quickly learned all about the fact that this could really take me places and. Um, because again, because of Jim Neal, Jim was really good friends with Mike Tatey at the time. And Mike, so in the fall of that year, Jim calls me the day after, day after Thanksgiving. And so this is 8 a.m. the day after Thanksgiving. And uh, says, Marty, you need to get, grab your brother, you need to get downtown right now and we're going to have breakfast with this guy, Mike Tatey. And I said, you know, who the hell is Mike Tatey? I, I, I really, even after, even after going to the Junior World Championship, I still had no idea. And uh, so me and my brother walk into this downtown Buffalo diner. And there's Jim Neal and Mike Tatey. And Mike Tatey at the time had this huge, like, Raleigh Fingers mustache. And, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is this guy Freddie Mercury or Mike Tatey? <laughs> so, uh, we sat down and... Um, and that was how I was introduced to Princeton. And uh, it was pretty much just all about getting in at that point. At that point. And I didn't, I probably didn't do my part in terms of trying to get in. Every time I took the SATs, I got worse. Every time I took the ACT, it was like way worse than the SAT. And wow. Somehow I got in and I didn't expect it. Um, the Naval Academy was my plan B. Um, and I was all kind of signed, seared, and, and, and delivered at the Naval Academy. And I remember getting into Princeton, and um, I still wanted, I still had sort of committed to Navy and Dan Lyons and uh, Chris Clark, with the time was the assistant coach at Navy. And I felt really bad about pulling out, but, um, you know, you got to make hard decisions sometimes. So Princeton it was. And this was uh, 94, 97, or 95, 98? this is uh this is the spring of 94 and okay all the to all the youngsters out there you used to be able to decide where you where you want to go to college like april 29th <laughs> uh you know the may 1st deadline and yeah take it right up to the last day and i certainly didn't intend to string anybody along but i i did not expect to get into princeton when i did it sort of changed everything but yeah. Wow. Now, in, in, in 94 and 97 at Princeton, um, what kind of success did your boats experience in that, in that era, that time frame? Uh, it was a good time to be at Princeton. Um, it was a good thing to be a part of. I just, I wrote a lot of coattails. Uh, 
you know, Mike Taney was my freshman coach. Curtis Jordan was the varsity coach. Um, Chris Ahrens. Uh, Chris, Chris sat behind me for a while. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but after, uh, after freshman year, I started having to ride his coattails. And, um, well, that was the start of his it was a Canadian run. It was a right? Canadian and that is a, that's as international as you got back in that day. Wow. Um, there really weren't any Europeans or anybody from down under at the time. Um, international was like somebody from Toronto. And uh, we had a few of those guys, and they looked like they just walked out of the woods, and they were their knuckles, <laughs> knuckles were dragging on the ground. Uh, Seth Brennan, Matt Adams, um, just the type of old man farmer strength that you just yeah. – just can't you can't coach they're just beasts and uh so yeah whenever we needed to dig down and you know get a few seats it was it was easy i guess um and my how, many, how many uh how many sprint or ira medals were won in that in that era with you guys at princeton uh we won the freshman eight uh i won in, i won as a sophomore and then i won again as a senior so this is ira or sprints or both uh iras was I mentioned, and then I only won sprints, uh, or we, sorry. Um, we only won sprints in 97. Oh, wow. What's ironic about that is, and, and this is not saying anything to the guys that I rode with in 96 and 98, but I think 97 was probably the fastest boat that we put together. And we, we crushed sprints, and we just got it all wrong for IRA. I don't know what happened, but um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do the uh the four in a row um because we, we totally swung and missed in 97 at iras when uh i should know this when when did dan garbett row at princeton he was in the 90s wasn't he yeah i think dan he was a freshman when i was a senior maybe i was a yeah i think we had one year of overlap he was 01 i was 98 so yeah i think we yeah. had one yeah, he had a smoking fast team in like 99, I think, right? It wasn't Princeton real quick in 99 or 98. They, I want to say they were really fast in 01. 01, um, they were really fast. Okay. Paul Tatey, Tom Hirschmiller, they had rode in the Olympic Games. They had taken the year off the of school. Right. Those guys all came back. And then they had the Flick brothers who were six foot seven each. Um, one is older than the other, but well, they might have had just one flick from there. No, they just had one flick from there. But anyway, you know, the, the first guys I know that pulled in the 540s on college. Yeah, so I mean, they, we, had a, they had a huge crew, and so they had a lot of success in 01. But IRAs that year, something happened. They just got on the back foot in qualification, or something happened. They ended up out in lane six, which is about six inches deep, back on the old Cooper River course. <laughs> before they dredged it and uh the deck was stacked against them cal you know cal was amazing um, yeah, at the right. time. cal beat him by about a half a boat at iris so in you graduate 97 you're in 98 i mean what what do you do with your career at that point in the late 90s where do you go uh late 90s <clears throat> it was really con super convenient i had already been on a couple of u23 teams and uh, mike Mike had gone from being my freshman coach the very next year, just taking over the national team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they won the eight in 97 and 98. 
Um, it was very much something you wanted to be a part of and you wanted to work your ass off to try to like just find a way into the bow seat of that grade eight. Um, so my intention was to keep on training and just stay in Princeton. I didn't even have to move out of my dorm. I think we found a way to like keep our dorm or something over the summer. Um, but after I graduated, uh, Oxford University, it, it was an opportunity and I thought it would be great to go away for a year and come back and maybe try to make the Olympics after I got back. Um, you know, maybe some regrets there in terms of that, in terms of trying to make the team, but no regrets on Oxford. Amazing, amazing regimen, amazing, amazing environment. Um, the academics over there gave me another chance to be like a scholar athlete. Um, it was a, uh, it was a paper degree, but I took it as seriously as I could take it. Again, if I had any, if I could go do it again, I would get myself in a real course or do a, so, a two-year course and, or a four-year course. Did you did you race uh, in the boat race over there? I did, 99. And how did you do? Down. Oh, what was that? Well, so, I mean, as an American, how many Americans were were in that in that competition at that time? Jeez. Uh, so one other American in my boat was Toby Air. Mm. So uh, you know Toby? I do not, no. He's, uh, um, he was helping out with Harvard. He was an MIT grad. Huge, huge ox of a guy. Huge, six foot six, just really broad shoulder. And then he just killed it. So he was this huge guy. You'd be totally scared of this guy, but he had this little C. Everett Coop beard with no mustache. He just had the beard. And I don't know what it is with these CDC guys or these like Surgeon General guys, because the guy now, guy, the head of the CDC that I see on TV, he's got the same beard. Like it's like a requirement <laughs> job or something. But anyway, Toby Air was in the boat and my, my roommate was Morgan Crooks, but he was Canadian. And then there were, there was a Swede, there was a German. And then three or four Brits. Now this is just—is it just what you said? One year at Oxford, is that right? Yeah, just one year. They 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 had a course they used to call the Diploma in Social Studies, hmm. and um, you know it's what you did if you played cricket or played rugby or road. And I mean, basically, that's what I thought. If I had gone back, um, it's it's really the, the admissions to Oxford these days are not easy. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not taking anything away from the guys who are like getting in there at this very moment. Um, I think I had the academic credentials from Princeton to be able to get into a better course looking back, but I just never, I just never knew what was available. I didn't really delve into it. I was just happy. I got a call one day and they said, if you want to come to Oxford and study and do this course and row in the boat race, like the opportunity is there. This is the person you have to contact and what was, uh, ju just for clarification's sake, what was your 2K score at that point in your, in your career? I mean, what kind of scores were you dropping at that, at that point? Uh, 556. Wow. Um, took me a while. Oh, I, I guess I made steady progress in that. I, you know, I, that, that's still pretty damn fast. I mean, even in today's standards, that's, that's a pretty quick 2K there. Well, you had to because, like, all the guys I've mentioned so far in this podcast, 
they were all doing that too. And <laughs> honestly, between Matt Adams and uh, I mean, guys in the JV were breaking six minutes. Um, and they went undefeated and they won the sprints and they won the IRA. You, you could have a day where the workout was three by 2K or three by 4K or something. And if you were just a little off, you would be ninth or 10th on starboard side. And so like you, you had to go down to the boathouse with a chip on your shoulder and you had to be hungry every day or you were just going to get passed. And you didn't know, like, okay, one day, that's fine. If you win the national championship when you're a sophomore, like maybe you can have a day off. Yeah. You're going to like just kick you down into the three day. But if you had a week or two or a month where you were just in a rut like that, you were out. And so you really had to, you had to really pay attention. So I want to bring up, this is an interesting topic. So when you were there, it, I think it, it's called the Armory, right? Like the Princeton Boathouse. You, you, had, you had the best athletes in the world training there, right? For the Olympic team yeah. and the national team. And at the same time, you had IRA, sprint winners, medalists. Like, did, I mean, beyond saying that you had a chip, a chip on your shoulder, like how much work was being done at Princeton? It had to be an, a crazy environment to be around. You're, you're talking about the best athletes in the world training there, right? You know, when I stop and think about it for five seconds and when you frame it like that, yes. I mean, how can you, the, the, the three-time three time defending world championship eight. Yeah, 97. All those, all those guys were, and it's, all those guys, this is really important. All those guys were so accessible and they were, I mean, 90% of those guys, I'm sure there's a guy here or there that I just haven't kept in touch with, but I consider all those guys my friends and they were national teamers. And, um, and then over the summer, I got to, I got to row with most of them. Uh, and, you know, if Mike Thady is, if Mike Thady ever comes across this podcast, what I really appreciate is the opportunity to row in that boat until like three weeks before worlds every year when he, when he just made his boat and then sent the boat to worlds. <laughs> oh. well, you know, I just, I look at, so he has to race in that boat a few times. A guy, a guy like me, I'm 34. Um, you know, I, I I've watched a fine balance. I don't even know how many times, a hundred times at this point. And you know, guys of my generation, my age, we really look up to, your group of people, the, the four or five years at Princeton, we look up to you guys because you helped define United States rowing. Like your small part, you're looking at Bo Hooman, not Bo Hooman, sorry, um, you're, you're Chris Aarons and, 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 and Volpe and this whole group. But again, I wanted to just like try to dive in a little bit more into that experience of having that much power and strength and ego and skill in the boathouse for four years i mean what else can you do or describe about that environment when you were there it's an era that 30 year old men of rowing in the united states deemed the best four years of u.s rowing ever i mean it, it was a special moment i uh you know it's amazing that um i was when you put it like that it's amazing that i even was a part of it uh in, in a very 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 small way I'm just going to, when I, when I first became a coach at Princeton, 
I got a letter, a really nice letter. Didn't have to do it, but I got a really nice letter from Joe Murtaugh, who was a longtime lightweight coach before Greg was a lightweight coach, before I was a lightweight coach. Excuse me. And Joe said, listen, congratulations on the job, and I'm just going to give you one little bit of advice. You can crumple this up and throw it in a bin if you want, but I just want you to hear it from me. The way to get on at the Shea Rowing Center is to share more than you take, to give more than you take. And so I'm just kind of putting that stake in the ground, and then I'm going to back up to your question. Guys like Phil Hem, like role players. Now, Phil won in 97. He was in the eighth at one in 97. But he didn't, then he, he wasn't in the 98 eight or the 99 eight. But role players like Phil Henry, Bob Kaler, Jeff Klopacki, Mike Callahan, and, and, and all the guys we've already mentioned. Those guys gave so much, they shared, and they didn't close themselves off. We were in selection. It was the Olympics. Because they had established so much, um, they had already won for the last three years. Everybody was scratching and clawing and fighting each other like mad to get in that boat and maybe the straight four if you're lucky. And despite all that, guys were still open. They were open books and they shared. Like, if you're having a bad day, they would, you know, you had to go back to the house or whoever you were living with at the time or whoever was hosting you. And they still just, they would, they would sit down, they would talk to you. They would talk about maybe what went wrong that day or how we could do better the next day. And like, I was so young and stupid that I needed that. And, mm. uh, and then getting back to Princeton, like Princeton was the same way. And hopefully, I don't know, hopefully people would say the same thing about me, but uh, I always, I always thought there were people around me that just gave me so much and they just shared share they were never got so competitive that somebody was too good for you or too good to just chat with you for five minutes and try to make you better that was that was the absolute key yeah i think there's not a lot of people that ever get that experience right in life that's a really big life experience i think that has probably helped shape you in your coaching and and, and it leads me to a, a what i consider a pretty good question um you're a princeton alum you're coaching Princeton. How have you carried on that tradition and that passion for Princeton rowing in your in the last ten years of your career? Because like it, it's it's obvious how much love and affection you have for Princeton. Like, is it challenging for you to keep that passion going? Is it is it is it? I guess do you share that with your athletes, your history and your story with your athletes? Like, walk me through that a little bit. I'm old enough now. Uh, and there's not a lot of video and there's not a lot of what I just told you for the last 20 minutes. There's not a lot that's documented unless you really, I think Row 2K started in 1998. So they only got like a quarter of that. <laughs> wow. um, but my athletes now, you know, they were born, they were born after I stopped rowing. Yeah. At, at, at a very high level. So my biography, my career in rowing doesn't mean squat. And I, so I don't, I don't try. I mean, I might refer to some things and I might tell some stories, but like, I'm not the subject of those stories. It's just like some hypothetical person, you know, and maybe, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll tell them that that was about me, but yeah, I don't try to make anything about my career and what it means to their career. I just try to, I try to teach, I try to teach them how I was taught. 
And I mean, how can you go wrong when you were taught by, again, Mark Kostrowski, Jack Thorne, Mike Tatey, Curtis Jordan, Chris Clark, Gavin White, uh, numerous others. Well, you brought up a topic that I think is for us at Rowers Choice and, and, and everything that we're doing, the history of rowing. It's interesting you said that your history doesn't mean squat to them. And, 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 and why do you think that is? Is it just because you're a dinosaur to them with air quotes or is it because they well, just because don't it was, care it was So long ago that it can't possibly be uh, applicable to today, you know, like things are different today. School's harder today, you know. I mean, you know, Princeton's harder, Oxford's harder, like everything's always harder. Or, um, I don't know, so maybe there's a little bit of that, but. Uh, so how do you think uh, this is, you know, you don't have to answer this question, but Tatey has done a really good job keeping himself relevant and a great coach through all this time. I mean, his, some would argue his pinnacle was in, in the 04 boat, but yet he's now running the program still. How do you think knowing Tatey, you know Tatey better than I do, how do you think he's done? What do you think he's done to keep himself with these youngsters uh, and, and relevant in a time like today? Um, well, he's, he's, he's a really, obviously, as everybody, he's a very charismatic guy. So you're naturally just kind of drawn to him. And then once, once you're drawn to him, it's easy to believe in his teachings. It's easy to believe in his way. And it's just, there's a magnetism to it. Um, I know Mike has most likely adapted to a lot of different things that have occurred over the last 30 years. But overall, uh, and I think about this with the other greats, they really stick to their guns. Mm. And, um, you know, Mike's the, Mike's the tip of the pyramid in terms of coaching a certain way. Um, I, tell the, I do tell this to my guys. You know, when we're out there doing six to 12 miles of legs only, you know, one in pause, you know, one in pause body over, outside arm only pause body over and they're sitting there going really legs only still again like another lap of legs only i tell them the story every time of the um you know two weeks before the athens eight went to the olympics they did like six or eight miles of legs only in that practice wow maybe they were just like sharpening up or maybe they had run out of stuff to do but Mike sticks to his guns. And if you go out with Mike uh, any day, he's, he's making the guys push their legs down and he's hanging off the outside arm. Um, and he's just doing the same stuff he's always done. And he's had success in a lot of places doing it. I, I'm I, like, I can't stop taking notes. Very simple. Very simple. No, that is very simple. Now, walk me through. Um, when you got the job at Princeton, when you, when you, when you became the head coach of Princeton, uh, when did that happen? Um, where were you in your life at that point? Before I was head coach, I actually was Curtis's assistant. And, um, so in 2005, I was in my, I was going in my third year as the director of the PNRA, uh, which was the PIRA at the time, Princeton International God Association, which basically runs the Mercer Lake facility. Yep. The Casperson Rowing Center. And um, I was, uh, I had the keys to the Casperson Center and um, I, I put in a bid for the 19 World Championship team. 
So I think it was 05. Or I think it was the summer of 05. The guys in that eight will kill me, but I, um, Craig Hoffman gave me the keys to the U19 junior team. So I laughed because he must have been crazy to do it. But I had a whole bid package and we we're going to run the training out of Casperson Center and we we're going to house the guys at Petty and we raised a whole bunch of money. And um, it's not like it is now where you got to pay like all this money to be a part of it. I, I detest that, by the way, for anybody listening out there. But uh, we we're able to do it so that anybody could come pay for your week of the selection camp. If you make the team, you don't have to pay anything. We went over to Germany. We won the gold medal. Wow. Just at that time, Curtis was looking for an assistant coach. And uh, I loved, loved being the director of the PNRA. I mean, that place is a gold mine. Uh, it's a great event center. It's a, you know, the national team trains out, trains out of there from time to time, whether it's the men or the women, and depending on who the coach is. Uh, I think Mercer Park in central New Jersey is just an amazing place. Anyway, it was a chance to come back to Princeton and work under Curtis, and I couldn't pass it up. So that's where I was. And then uh, for four years, I did that. And then Curtis in 09 just decided to um, turn over a new page in his book. And he said he just wanted to get into something different. But like six months later, he was going down to Australia to be the head of New South Wales rowing. And then um, he ended up being like on the Olympic staff down there. So he might've known that was going on. Um, he wanted to pursue that. So he left the top of the heap, Greg moved up and then I moved up under Greg. So this is, so you've been there, that 11, I mean, it's like 11 years, 12, 11, 12 years. Uh, that was, uh, oh, yeah, oh five to 09. And so in the fall of 09, I became the head coach of lightweight rowing. So yeah, I'm, I think this, I think this was my 11th year, something like that. Now, I, I want to, we're going to, we're going to close with this. This is going to be our last closing topic here. And, I, and it's a, it's a, it's a heavy one. So there's going to be some time dedicated to it. Um, the IOC is against lightweight rowing and, and there's talks, chatter constantly about lightweight rowing. You are running the lightweight program of, of, of Princeton, uh, Princeton, right? A program that has won a lot of medals at the highest levels. Given what's happening, where do you see lightweight rowing going in the sport of rowing in the United States in the next, say, three or five years? I think if you look at it just from a competitive standpoint, that's the number one thing we have going is that lightweight rowing is an opportunity for a larger segment of the rowing population to be competitive. And there's no doubt that the lightweight rowing races, whether it's, you know, uh, the, the varsity eight at the Eastern Sprints or IRA, it's all the way down to like the freshman lightweight four at the Dad Bales. Like lightweight rowing races are some of the most competitive rowing races at the regatta. And so in terms of uh, excitement, um, uh, the excitement value of it or just the uh, excitement value for the, the rowers involved, I think we're in a good spot. It's, okay. If anything, it's getting more competitive. Uh, this year this year would have been a great spring for us, and there's a lot of coaches saying that. It would have been a great spring for us. We were, we were going really well, but 
I've never been more, um, you know, just looking at the landmines on my schedule. I've never had so many back to back to back to back to back hard races that were already on my schedule. To have Penn, Cornell, Columbia, and Harvard, and Yale, and everybody was going to be, everybody was going to be right there this year. Navy was coming off a medal at the sprints last year. Like everybody kind of really had their act together. And so in my 10 years, we've gone through, I mean, Princeton's gone through some, not dark days, but some cloudier days where, I mean, I never went into any Saturday or championship without thinking I could win, but um, we, you know, looking back, we probably had no chance of winning. I think this year, four or five crews on the right day had a chance to win. And so like, again, competitively, you can't, you can't dispute. And I think any other, any other one of my colleagues would agree uh, that this year was going to be just an amazing year in our league. On an international level, the Olympic games is always, it's going to have its limitations. Um, they want to sell deodorant. They want to sell shampoo. They want to sell suntan oil. So look, beach volleyball, skateboarding, BMX, maybe, maybe they got to find a place for those sports and, um, you know, move rowing aside a little bit, but, um, I think as long as rowing keeps a spot in the Olympics, I think lightweight rowing will always have a, will always have a place domestically. We have a huge alumni bases out there. I know my administration at Princeton is 100% support of us and our, our chance to win an Ivy League championship every year. So, look, as coaches, we just have to keep on keeping on and um, you know, teach what was taught to us and create a competitive environment. It's gonna, it makes the kids stronger. It makes them smarter. It makes their experience at Princeton better. And um, that's hopefully what will – Help the sport along. You know, let me challenge you. Let me let me let me let me challenge you. So, um, what do you say to the coach or the individual who says, "Well, the boys or girls, men and women that that try to become lightweights are hurting their bodies for the future." So, like a natural weight of a 175 guy is sucking weight to get to 150. There's a lot of health problems with that. At Princeton, I'm sure you follow rules and regulations. So what do you tell the people that say health reasons you shouldn't have it? Um, I agree. You agree that we should, you should, that you should I'll elaborate it. on that a little bit. I was trying <laughs> to make a point there. I, I agree. I don't think, um, I run away from a kid who comes in, sits on your couch, he's, 168 pounds as a 17 year old he's making a visit to Princeton and he asked me the types of things he should be doing so that he can stay lightweight oh yeah I, I mean I turned right to mom and dad and I looked the kid in the eye and I said uh, don't be doing anything to make sure you stay lightweight and when a lot of people are asking me I, I, I guess you got me on the spot but I, and if this gets me in trouble fine what U.S. Rowing did to um to lower the high school weight and you know they still have the within two hours of your race or within an hour of your race i think all those things are good and if they were to eliminate lightweight rowing um it might not be the worst thing and it might not be it, it might not be the worst thing for college rowing um, because the age group 
age group, high school enrollment, you're not defined as an adult yet. So technically, you can't make decisions for yourself yet. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get to college, you get away from home, you can make those decisions. And um, all the lightweight programs that I know have a heavyweight bay right next door. So if you want to decide to get into the spring and watch your weight and weigh in every Friday at five o'clock, um, you can make that decision as an adult. And if it's too much for you, there's a heavyweight rowing team right next door. And um, that's the way it's always been at Princeton. Um, when it comes to getting back to high school, you shouldn't be 14 years old or you shouldn't be 16 years old trying to go from 160 to 149 and then rowing an hour later. Like it's just not, it's just not right. And that doesn't mean that you can't be competitive lightweight rower in college just because you couldn't row lightweight in high school. So, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm trying to bifurcate. The, it's like on one hand, I say that in college, you're old enough to make the decisions and I don't see the health risk. And we go through all these protocols to make it as safe as you possibly can, including weighing in the night before at 5 p.m. Mm. Literally have 17 or 18 hours before your race. Um, it's, it's very safe. Again, you're dealing with adults versus kids in high school. So I think there are differences between high school and college. Well, you did a really good job um, explaining your position. But what I like, what I like hearing is that as the coach, the person that runs the program and that oversees these athletes, and, and look, you, you and I both know a 20-year-old is still not an adult. A 21-year-old is still not an adult. They need direction from coaches, from parents, from family. Keeping a good head on your shoulders and saying, if you're 168 pounds and you're trying to, you're asking me the wrong, you're asking me the wrong questions if I want to become a lightweight. I like that. You have an open door policy on the heavyweight side, right? So you, you are, you're keeping protocol, you're keeping things the way they should be. And if you're naturally of weight, then lightweight, lightweight rowing should exist. But if you're on that border and you need to make a decision, then it's clear that you as a leader of that program or a leader of uh, Princeton University, you say, look, you're not going to make it at lightweight. Here's a great program that you can still row, still be competitive. Now you're just going to make a different decision. I, I, I love that. And I think we're huge proponents of it. We think lightweight rowing should continue and blossom and grow with the right protocol. And I think you, you stated your position very clearly. And I like that. Um, with your... So you, you, look, I got three pages of notes here and I can keep going on this. Um, walk me through your, your next, say, five, 10 years. I mean, are you a Princeton for lifer guy or are you looking to change, grow your career even more in, in different areas of rowing or, or do you just really like where you are right now? Like, where do you see yourself, Marty, in a couple of years? Coaching is great. Uh, Princeton's a great place to be, no doubt about it. Uh, it provides a tremendous environment for my family. I have three kids and uh, they're getting older. So I have twin 13 year olds and an eight year old. So far, so good with the twins. The only place they want to go to college is Princeton. I think they only think there's two or three universities on the planet. Um, my wife went to Princeton. So, you know, we, Princeton is in us and yeah. it's given us all the opportunities we've ever had. Um, so I would love to be here for the rest of my career. Coaching is, is cyclical and, um, you know, we 
race the same schedule. We go to the same championships, see the same faces, race against the same guys every year. But hey, at least 30% of your team changes every year. So it's interesting enough for me to get 10 or 15 new bodies every year and to try to bring them along and try to improve on some of the mistakes I make. And um, I've gone through ebbs and flows and early in my coaching career was uh, at the high school level and even at the junior world championship level, super successful early in my head coach career. I was more successful than I was in 13, 14, 15 were, were tough years, 16, 2016 tough years. And I'm kind of back on the upswing. So like it ebbs and flows enough to keep it more than interesting myself. And I, there's nothing I like better than grabbing my megaphone and going out and launching at four o'clock every day. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that beats that. You know, it's, uh, we've coached, we've, we've done a lot of, we've interviewed a lot of coaches and it's the same thing. It's the same comment. They just love getting up every day at the same time, working their butts off in the launch, cold, hot, doesn't matter. The passion for rowing is there and the passion for Princeton's there. I, like, you know, Marty, I love your story, man. I'm, I'm a guy that drops a 620 just out of the blue. Buffalo, New York, a, a place that no one would ever think rowing really existed. You've been in the presence of some of the best rowers and coaches this sport has seen in, ever uh, in, in the United States specifically. And you're, you're at, your, at your first probably love Princeton coaching a great program. Look, man, I, I love this story. And I really hope that the kids that you coach appreciate that era that you were at you know we talked about Princeton 96 to 2000 I mean 2001 those are pinnacle years for rowing I really hope they appreciate it um is there any last remarks that you want to say before we end this uh this this interview here uh just the way you asked the questions along the way you know it, it got me talking about certain eras or, or parts too I I wouldn't be a coach you might find this interesting just because I've listened to a couple of your previous episodes. I wouldn't be a coach. So in 1999, I went to Oxford, 2000, didn't make the Olympic team. July of 2000, I'm like, what do I do now? My girlfriend at the time says, I'm going to University of Chicago Law School. Want to come out, hang out with me, maybe get a job out there. I said, I've heard Chicago is a big buffalo. I'm in. So we packed up the U-Haul. Wow. Drove from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Chicago, uh, where my wife checked into her first year at law school. We're, Christ we're Catholic Christians, so can't live together. And that was cool. And, and, we, and we, really didn't, we really didn't share a bed until we were married. But, yeah, a secret safe with me, man. Okay, okay. got it. Uh, just in case your dad's watching. But um, So I had a place up in Lincoln Park, and she had a place down in Hyde Park, down where the law school was. So in Chicago, or if you're from Buffalo, you gotta have you gotta have your neighborhood bar. You gotta have a place. If I'm gonna get a job, if I'm gonna live in Lincoln Park, like I gotta have a bar that I go to on my way home from work. You gotta have your place. So the very first bar I walked into, on no recommendation, just by chance, I walk into this place called Will's Northwood Lounge. And I shit you not. There's this little small guy, this little small runty guy behind the bar, and he's, he's counting some 20s in the cash register. And I'm like, I know that guy. And he's got a Wisconsin hat on. <laughs> and he turns around, and who is it? It's Matt Baldino. Oh, man. 
Holy crap. The last time I had seen Mount Baldino was at the 1998, 1997 IRAs, but Mount Baldino was the coxswain of the Cox four in that 1993 junior team. So Matt and I go way back. Wow. And I walk into Chicago and I put a 20 on the bar and I don't think that $20 bill was cashed for the next three years. I spent three years in Chicago and Matt Baldino, Bruce Smith, uh, Tim, Tim Kelly, Mike Kelly, those guys recruited me to help out with the Loyola Academy rowing team in, in 2000. Raul Rodriguez was a coach then. So I started helping out with the program and I got a feel for how impactful you can be. Again, just sharing the experience. And at the time you asked me with Princeton kids, do I share my experiences with them? Not directly, but at the time I had just gotten out of a national team boat a year ago mm -hmm. and um, I didn't make the Olympics. And there was a lot of failure in my mind there, but sharing my experiences with those guys and just like, just understanding how impactful I could be in a situation of whether it's a volunteer coach or an actual everyday coach, I just got, a, I got a feel for coaching. I really liked it. And, um, I couldn't, I, I, I didn't turn back after that. I had, I had uh, a day job. Then Bruce left, Bruce headed out, Bruce headed out East again. And I became the head coach of Loyola Academy, uh, just for one year. Wow. Uh, but if I didn't do that, I would have never, I would have never been a coach as a so who knows if Mount Baldino is not tending bar at Wills Northwood Lounge in uh, August of 2000. Who knows if I'm a coach? I have no idea. That's amazing. No, I know you like stories like that. So there you go. I love that story. I mean, that you know, we, we, we work with Matt a lot. And yeah, I mean, that's, I have those same stories. I mean, I, we all do. And, and that's, that's beautiful. Is, what's amazing is, again, the one degree of separation, how lucky and fortunate you are to be connected to all these people in your life. I mean, they help shape your life. They help shape the direction that you've taken your family. And uh, it, it's a beautiful story. And I really hope that people that watching or listening uh, uh, get a same sense that realize like, you know what, maybe I am going to walk into a bar in Chicago and meet the next person that's going to give me the direction to go and take it, my career in another, another, another way. Or maybe they, they'll appreciate more the athletes and the coaches that are around right now because they help shape who they become 20 or 30 years from now. I think it's a, it's a beautiful story, man. I love it. So, I just think if, if you're around good people and you feel like they're good people and you admire them, whatever they do or whatever wisdom they can impart on you, just trust it. And then the same thing goes for if, if you find yourself encountering like a real, real dick, Probably at there. <laughs> we are going to end. On away from that. That is a perfect ending. Uh, I'm Alex Del Sordo, and this is Marty Crotty, the head coach of Lightweight Princeton Rowing. I hope you had a chance to listen and feel for what this guy had to say, and I think it will impact you in the future as well. Thanks for watching. This is the Rower's Choice Podcast. Rower's Choice is made up of finish line shell repair, Resolute Racing Shells, and Sykes USA. 